Well, this past Sunday, if you were with us, you know we were in John chapter 6. This coming Sunday will be in John chapter 8. And so I thought it'd be fitting for us to just spend our time this evening in John chapter 7. You'll remember if you were with us on Sunday that in John 6, there's this movement from a massive crowd to a massive migration. There's a massive crowd excited about Jesus, and by the end of it, if you read on, you saw there are only 12 disciples there. A massive departure. Well, now in chapter 7, as we turn our attention there this evening, it's not just the 12. There are others now around, in fact, buzzing around this Jesus. But there's confusion, and there's consternation, and there's conflict. But Jesus communicates very clearly who he is. While John 7 doesn't have one of those famous I am statements that we're working through on Sunday mornings together, uh, much like the I am statements though, in fact much like the whole of John's gospel account, John 7 is giving us what, what we may, what we need to know, what we need to believe. Remember, it ends, the book ends Chapter 20, verse 31, these things were written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. That's what John 7 shows us in a different kind of story, in a different kind of scene than other parts of John. So let's read it together. We'll read John 7, starting in verse 1, and we'll go to verse 39 this evening. Here's what God's word says through the apostle John. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works that you're doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that, it, that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, he's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast... Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not my own, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. 
But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true, and in him there's no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath the man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him. But no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, he will, do, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I will be with you a little longer and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, there's a lot going on in this passage, as you may have felt. So it may help us up front uh, to notice the culmination towards the end. Verse 37 to 38, what Jesus says there on that last day of the feast where he stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's the culmination. That's where everything is building. And we'll come back to that towards the end. We'll eventually get there. But, but tuck away the fact now that that is the culminating moment of this story. Notice as well that leading up to that culminating moment, there is a frenzy of opinion about Jesus. In verses 1 to 36, you've got this flurry of people and opinions about Jesus. There's a teeming of people 
and different kinds of people in and around Jerusalem. Again, all with varied opinions and approaches to Jesus. So, I mean, just glance down, if you would, in your Bibles, and and let me just point to these different people and their different opinions. In verse 1, the Jews were seeking to kill him. In verse 3, his brothers, well, they've got their own advice for him. We'll come to that in a bit. In verse 11... The Jews were muttering about him. Some think he's good, some not so good. Verse 15, the Jews marveled at his knowledge apart from formal education. Verse 25, some of the people wondered how, according to the scriptures, this Jesus could be the one. Verse 31, many of the people believed in him, but probably not savingly. Verse 32, the Pharisees, chief priests, and scribes were seeking to arrest him. In verse 35, the Jews said to one another, what does he mean when he says this or that? So there are several rounds which all follow the same pattern. There's a a question or a charge about Jesus from some group of people, and then Jesus responds to their question or charge or conundrum about him for a verse or two or three. Now, keeping track of all of that, because it's so back and forth, it can be dizzying. But John, the writer of this account, helpfully marks out for us a few headings according to time. They all have to do with the Feast of Booths. So let me point those out to you now. So verse 2, the Feast of Booths was at hand. That means it's about to begin. And then verse 14, it's about the middle of the feast. And then verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day. Now that'll be our outline, essentially, as we try to hang our thoughts on how this passage works. But before we even get to that outline... We just have to think of what the Feast of Booths, what is also called the Feast of Tabernacles, or the Feast of Tents, what it was. What are we dealing with here? Because if Feast of Booths is all over this passage, even giving us the structural layout of the passage, then we better know why it's here. It's not here just because that happened to be the week that these things took place. Of course, I believe it was indeed the week in which these things took place. But it didn't happen on that week by accident. No, there's significance to this. There's importance to this. There's there's no accident. These things happened that week, and these things were spoken this week. The Feast of Booths celebrated and really commemorated God's care for and his provision for his people in the wilderness, in the days of Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, there's the amazing provision of God for his people. It's signified primarily in the bread that came down from heaven and the water that flowed out of a rock miraculously to provide for them. For them to remember, Not just in the wilderness, but for them to remember throughout Israel's history how God provided, how God cared for his people. He instituted a week 
long celebration called the Feast of Booths. And booths or or tents would be constructed to remind them of those days when they traveled in the wilderness and they would variously partake of bread and water rituals in those days to remind them of God's provision of bread and water in the wilderness. And by the way, here we see how John 6 and John 7 clearly hold hands. John 6 is often called the bread of life discourse because there Jesus explains what he was up to when he fed the 5,000 with the loaves. And now in John 7, it culminates with Jesus talking about water. Bread, water. That's what he provided in the wilderness. And that's what the Feast of Booths celebrated. And indeed, it celebrated it. This was not one of those kind of Jewish memorials meant to get people thinking about their sin a little more deeply. This wasn't one of those bitter kind of Jewish holidays. This is one of those Thanksgiving kind of holidays. Happy, celebratory, warm, lots of food, enjoyment, feasting. So grasp the the significance of the feast and what it represents and what it's pointing back to historically, those days of the Exodus and God's provision in it. And also grasp the atmosphere of the celebration of the Feast of Booths. Celebration, thanksgiving, joy, amazement at God's kind, undeserved, miraculous even, his provision for his people. So with that in mind, let's use those time markers. When the feast was at hand, in the middle of the feast, and then on the last day of the feast. First, when the feast was at hand, verse 2 marks out that section and it stretches to verse 13. I've mentioned already that there is almost a dizzying array of various charges or questions or conundrums about Jesus from some group of people, and then Jesus responds accordingly with clarity and truth. There are more controversies and questions than we have time to deal with tonight. And so just know that I I plan to be selective. I just want to point out one or two of these rounds of question about Jesus. Jesus responds in turn. Okay, so here, when the feast was at hand, it's about to begin. This is when Jews head to Jerusalem. That's where the Feast of Booths was celebrated. And his brothers say, why don't you go? They don't believe in him yet. They say, if you're the Messiah, and if you can do wondrous works, why do you do them in a back alley? Why do you do them in the backwoods? Why don't you go into Jerusalem at the time of the feast and do them there? You see, it's pessimistic advice. It's almost mockery. If you're really the Messiah, quit holding back, and why don't you go public already? To which Jesus responds, verse 8, no, you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, not yet. My time has not yet fully come. His time, his time, it's all through John 
It's the cross. We'll see it in our passage more than once. His time had not yet fully come. Jesus was in control of the plan. And it was tricky. Think about this. Jesus can't hit the gas pedal on the publicity of his role as Messiah because then he'll either be forced into his kingship or be killed for his blasphemy before the appointed time. I mean, what if Jesus wasn't killed on the Passover weekend, but like a, a Tuesday before? Well, we wouldn't know to connect it to the Passover. And I, I don't know. I mean, sure, it, it can work, but, but it would at least leave something out of the story that we currently know and love. And so when the feast was at hand, Jesus was tapping the brake pedal. No, not yet. The Jews are out to kill me. I can't go into Jerusalem just yet. When the feast was at hand, Jesus slowed down for a time. But then, secondly, in the middle of the feast, verse 14, about the middle of the feast, then Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Uh-oh, what's going to happen? Is, is, this, is this the proper ratio of gas pedal and brake pedal in the plan of God? Of course it is. But they do marvel. Verse 15, how is it that this man has learning when he's never studied? How does this man know what he knows? How does he say what he says when he hasn't gone to seminary? He hasn't sat under a rabbi. He's untrained. That's when Jesus says in verse 16, my teaching isn't my own. I didn't get it from a man. I didn't make it up myself. I got it from him who sent me. And he unpacks that over a couple more verses. And then in verse 27, we have another round. Different people come on the scene and they essentially say, we know where this Jesus comes from. Whether they mean Nazareth or Bethlehem, it doesn't really matter. They, what they're saying is, we know he's a dude. We, we know he's just a guy. We know he has parents. We know he was born and, and was raised. And they essentially say, but, but isn't the Christ supposed to basically come out of nowhere? And you might be thinking, well, boy, they sure had it wrong. I mean, you know, we know about Bethlehem and the promise of Isaiah there that the virgin would give birth and the son would be born in Bethlehem. Yes, but another angle was that one day God would just show up and he'd show up out of nowhere. He's not going to show up like, like just a, a baby, like a guy down the street. So, this can't be Jesus. We know where he comes from. Jesus responds, verse 29, I've come from God. He sent me. And again, we could go into more of these questions and answers, but we'll move on to the climactic moment. Thirdly, on the last day of the feast, the great day. And again, I say, this is the crescendo moment. Notice here for the first time that what Jesus says is not in response to something someone else has said about him. He's done playing ping pong. Here, Jesus initiates. Here, he just speaks. And throughout the passage, there's been a progression 
of time, of course, we've already noted that with our outline, when the feast was at hand, when the feast was in the middle, and then on the last day. But there's also been a progression of publicity because at one point Jesus wouldn't go into Jerusalem. And then all of a sudden, verse 14, he's at the temple and he's publicly teaching. And by verse 37, he's standing up and doing so quite loudly. There's even a progression of intensity in the words that describe his teaching. Notice verse 6, Jesus said. And then verse 16, Jesus answered. And then verse 28, Jesus proclaimed. You see, it's escalating. And then 37, Jesus stood up and cried out. And what he cried out was an astounding invitation Verse 37, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Now there is some significant background here. And we don't find it in the Old Testament. We find it in what's called the Mishnah. The Mishnah was a record of uh, Jewish um, tradition compiled around 200 B.C. or so. So the thing it's good for is describing what was happening in the days of Jesus. To describe Judaism at the time when Messiah came. And so from the Mishnah, we read that in each day of this Feast of Booth, this week-long feast... Each day, the high priest would draw water from the pool of Siloam and would carry it back in procession to the temple. And once he got there, then the trumpet sounded three times. And then Isaiah 12, 3 was read, which says, Therefore, you will joyously draw water from the springs of salvation. And then... At the temple, the priests would march around the altar while the choir and the people sang the Hallel Psalms. That's Psalm 113 to 118, those ascent psalms. And it was only then that the water that the priest had it would be poured out as an offering to God and as a mark of thankfulness for his provision in times past and in present, and as a mark of the anticipation of the day when God pours out water in an unparalleled, unthinkable way. We'll come to that in just a bit. But it's against that backdrop that we find in the Mishnah that Jesus spoke those stunning words. It was on the last day. Now, we don't know if that was the seventh day or the eighth day. Uh, this is confusing, I know, but it doesn't really matter. If it was the eighth day, which some people say the last day was considered the eighth day when it was all done, so like the day when you um, begin to pack up. If it's the eighth day, then for seven days the high priest has poured out his water. On the eighth day, Jesus stands up and cries out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Or if it was the seventh day, it really doesn't matter. You can imagine, you can imagine 
the visible display, if it was the seventh day, here everyone's watching the great high priest take his basin of water once again, now for the seventh time. And as the Hallel psalm, the last one is sung, the priest pours out that water and Jesus takes his stand as if it is his pulpit at the temple. And he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of water. Notice there's a condition found in what Jesus says in verse 37. If anyone thirsts, you have to thirst. That's the only condition. If anyone thirsts. So on the one hand, notice how wide open this invitation is, especially in light of the slew of different skeptics and enemies mentioned in the previous 36 verses. I mean, they're out to kill him. The brothers are essentially shoving him. The people are muttering about him. People are doubting him left and right. Some believe him, but not really. And it's to those people that Jesus voices the invitation Anyone who thirsts, come. But you must thirst. You got to want what he has. You got to sense your need. If you feel like you're, you're all good, you're all quenched up, you're all filled, well, then you can't come. But if you do thirst, then come. Oh, J.C. Ryle, he was the Archbishop of Liverpool in the Anglican Church back in the 1800s. He was involved in the founding of Wycliffe Hall, Oxford, where Sarah and I spent some of our early married years. And J.C. Ryle on the gospel accounts is just golden. Like the way you're used to hearing Spurgeon quotes and just thinking, boy, that man had a gift from the Lord of wording things. So J.C. Ryle is like that on the gospel accounts. And so I'm going to read you two paragraphs about the thirst and the invitation to come from J.C. Ryle. He says, such thirst as this unhappily is known by few people. All ought to feel it, and all would feel it if they were wise. Sinful, mortal, dying creatures as we all are, with souls that will one day be judged and spend eternity in heaven or hell. There lives not the man or woman on earth who ought not to thirst for salvation. And yet that the many thirst after everything almost except salvation like money, pleasure, honor, rank, self-indulgence. These are the things which they desire. There is no clearer proof of the fall of man and the utter corruption of human nature than the careless indifference of most people about their souls. Yet, happy are those who know something by experience of spiritual thirst. 
The beginning of all true Christianity is to discover that we are guilty, empty, needy sinners. But those words, he goes on to say, but those words, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me, are few, but very simple. They settle a mighty question which all the wisdom of Greek and Roman philosophers could never settle. They show how man can have peace with God. They show that peace is to be had in Christ by trusting in him as our mediator and substitute. In one word, by believing. To come to Christ is to believe on him. And to believe on him is to come. The remedy may seem very simple, too simple to be true, but there is no other remedy than this. J.C. Ryle, thoughts on, and then Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. You can find it on the web for free. There's thirst. There's the invitation to come. There's the offer of water. For the thirsty. Water. When you're in a desert, water means life. It's salvation. But it's more than that. It's also good. It's satisfaction. And there's that further result in verse 38. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Followed by John's explanation in verse 39. Now this, Jesus said, about the Spirit. That's the living water flowing out of the heart of a believer. This he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet, the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, Jesus will talk about this Spirit explicitly in his own words in John 14, 15, and 16. It's the Spirit that will come at, at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But that runs through from this moment on in John 7, the death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus. He had not yet been glorified. That's the resurrection and ascension. And he had not yet been glorified because he had not yet been crucified. But the handwriting is all over the wall, right? The hour hadn't come. Everyone's out to kill him. Jesus says, I won't be here much longer. I'm going to him who sent me. Where I'm going, some of his hearers wouldn't be able to go with him. So this comment from John in verse 39 is very forward-looking, but it's also backward-looking. It looks back to the Old Testament. In three texts, specifically, one is Isaiah 44, where God promised through the prophet Isaiah that one day I will pour water on the thirsty land in streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. And they will spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. That's one Old Testament passage in mind. A second is Ezekiel 47. When the prophet Ezekiel has this vision of a consummate end times temple to come. 
And he was brought to the door of the temple in this vision. And behold, water was issuing from below the threshold of the temple toward the east. And then you read on for another eight verses and describes the water also going to the south and also to the north. The temple is facing east. And so this is flowing into all the world. A temple, it's, it's metaphorical, it's not literal. But, but there's this image of a temple one day flowing into the world with blessing. That's Ezekiel 47. And then Zechariah 13, verse 1. On that day, that same consummate day, there will be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. And this continues off and on throughout the next chapter. Chapter 14, verse 8. On that day, living waters shall flow out of Jerusalem. Half of them will go to the eastern sea. Half of them will go to the western sea. Again, a picture of it going global. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. Now with those passages in mind, John 7, the consummate moment, on the last day, of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, all over the place, not just in one place, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John says, That's the spirit. That's the fulfillment. This is what we've been waiting for. Jesus is the fulfillment not only of God's provision in the wilderness, as in the Feast of Booths. But Jesus is also the fulfillment of promises that were enlarged in the days of the prophets when God promised water not to a people in the wilderness, but to all people all over the world. Not just for a day with manna or a day with the water from the rock, but forever, forever for good. I mean, just... Just think of what it means to have water which saves, water which satisfies, water which purifies, water which is not merely enough for all that, but is more than enough. He doesn't give us a pool, but a fountain. It just keeps flowing and flowing. He, he, Jesus has made us, his followers, into river makers. Astounding as it is. And so I ask two questions to, to begin to wrap this up. First, who is Jesus to you? You've got a lot of options available to you from different characters in the text. You can say he's a fake who's hiding behind trees instead of going public like his brothers did. You can say, I don't know who he is, but if he was born, he's not from God. You can say, let's arrest him. You can say he deserved death. Or you can believe. You can Come to him. You can, in faith, acknowledge that the thirst all over your life 
can only be satisfied in Jesus, which won't make you a perfectly happy person in the rest of this life. No, I don't want to oversell it. But there is something to it. He is the quench. He is the salvation. He is life. He is the promises of God in the flesh. He is the answer. He's the one who brings the spirit. He's the river maker. So who is Jesus to you? And secondly, what do his words of invitation and promise mean for you? Salvation? Satisfaction? Hopefully the gift of the Holy Spirit? Now, you, you don't fully get the gift of the Holy Spirit, and neither do I. I don't get exactly how the Holy Spirit is praying prayers for me that are better than my own prayers. With words that can't be uttered, or groanings too significant for words. I don't know what that means. I know it's good. I've tasted just something of it, of God's presence and nearness. And I mean, don't you just love that the scriptures say that the Spirit's been given to us, shed abroad in our hearts, in fact, so that we sense a, a cry of Abba, Father, within. That Holy Spirit is like water, not only flowing to us and residing in us, but flowing out of us and blessing others. I pray we would walk in light of this amazing gift of the quenching water of Christ and the flowing water of the Spirit to us, in us, overflowing in us, in hopefully overflowing to others as we give them the gospel, as we share Christ's love, as we bring his light to bear. And one day there will be a last day, a great day, and we will feast. Revelation 21 speaks of it. It is done. Jesus says, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In the next chapter, the angel showed John, the same John, by the way. He showed him the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Eastwardly, westwardly, north and south. And until then, and here's how Revelation basically ends. Until then, the spirit and the bride say, come, come. And if you have ears to hear that word come, come, you, come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price, let him or her come.